0: Okay, let's uh, crack on this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, if you turn to Luke 19, uh, verse 11, Luke 19, verse 11, that's the next chunk of the series that we're going through. It'll come up on the screen in a minute when I read it out, but if you prefer reading it in your Bibles or tablets, then that's where we're going this morning, Luke 19, verse 11. Seems to me generally these days, as I read the paper and watch the news, that people are pretty confused. Lots of people are very confused about who they are, they're confused about what will really bring them happiness, they're confused about why they're even alive. They seem to me that lots of people are chasing after a meaning to life without really finding it. Uh, Often they seem to make a lot of noise. Uh, that they're pretty sure what the meaning of life is and and what the purpose is. They seem to like to post lots of photos uh, to prove to everyone that they are the happiest being alive and have the most fulfilled life, etc., etc. Although sometimes they write as well, if only everybody else would agree with them, uh, that they would really be happy. I think generally as I look on at the world, seems to me there's a lot of confused uh, individuals. Does anybody agree with that? But I think that's actually always been the case. I think it's always been the case down through the generations. And this parable that we're going to look at today is just as relevant for us today, 2,000 years after Jesus told us, because the truth is people don't really change. People don't really change at heart. And to get something of the context, we've got to remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem He is going to be betrayed. He's going to be tried falsely on a kind of mockery of a court. He's going to be crucified. That's what is round the corner. And this really is his final earthly journey that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, this Jerusalem journey. And he's surrounded by people. He's not Speaking like this in a hall, he's, he's surrounded by a load of people and they're going somewhere, they're going on this journey. He's heading towards Jerusalem and the people around him are a mixed bunch. He's got some of his disciples, those who are wanting to follow him and believe in him and live for him. He's surrounded by some of his enemies, those who hate him and want to kill him. He's surrounded by a whole load of people who have just flocked to hear his teaching or maybe witness one of his miracles. They're not really for him or against him, but they're intrigued by him. And so we've got to get this picture of Jesus literally walking along the road with this crowd of people made up of different kinds of people. And as we've been looking at over the last few weeks, Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God. That's the theme that he's been teaching them on. He's been telling them stories, parables, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And sometimes he talks to everybody and sometimes he's just talking to his disciples and sometimes he's even confronting his enemies in a way that they probably know that he's confronting them but they don't really know kind of what he's saying. And where we get up to today, we're told that Jesus told this parable because he's getting very near to Jerusalem. It's just round the corner. And there are still people who believe that God's rule on earth, his kingdom, is going to appear as soon as they reach Jerusalem. It's like once Jesus the Messiah enters Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is going to come. That's what they think. Basically, God's people are going to start to physically rule over the Romans and over the earth until the Until the last days, if you like. This is the beginning. This is the kind of Game of Thrones if you follow that series. This is it. This is the final thing. The kingdom of God is going to come as Jesus the Messiah steps foot in Jerusalem. That's what some people think. But Jesus has been telling them that the kingdom of God is not about physical domination. It's not about the army of God defeating the army of everybody else but it's about a spiritual restoration between God and the people that he created. And the kingdom of God would manifest on earth, but it would only be kind of seen partially, as it were. That it wouldn't be until Jesus comes back a second time that really the kingdom of God would fully come. And Jesus knows that's not going to be immediate. As I stand here this morning, we know it's 2,000 years and counting so we've got to remember the context for jesus telling this parable and with all parables we mustn't get bogged down in the detail we mustn't try and form our doctrine which is what we believe from some area that the parable just touches or mentions we need to remember that jesus told parables to make a point or to reinforce a point to bring something to life He's not trying to talk about everything that the parable mentions. And as far as I'm concerned, the title that the Bible translators gave this particular parable is not very helpful. They call it the parable of the miners or minas or however else you pronounce it. I don't think it's very helpful because a miner, M-I-N-A-S, is just a sum of money. That's all that it is. But this parable isn't really about money. It's just something which is used in the story. Personally, I think a better title would have been The Parable of the Servants. The Parable of the Servants. One wicked and two good. Because in many ways, they, I think, are the main characters or certainly the main characters that we want to focus on this morning. And the fact is that these two servants responded very differently to the same Opportunities which they both had. So after reading this parable, we're going to look at the one that's called the wicked servant and what he did and why, and then we're going to look at the the two good servants and what they did and why. So we're kind of going to compare, contrast these two different types of servants, and then we'll have a look at ourselves and see what we can learn and apply today. Is that all right? Are you with me? Bless you. Let's read this parable, Luke 19, 11 to 27. Jesus speaking. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was making, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir... Your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away. In a piece of cloth, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? So when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Father, we pray that by your word you would teach us. We're not here this morning to judge your word, but we're here to be shaped and taught according to your word. So we ask you now, by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand what it is that you want to teach us this morning, and you would help us to apply what you are saying into our lives. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. That's a good parable, this one, isn't it? Interesting. When you actually read it a bit slowly, there's a bit more to it maybe than people think. Let's just get our heads around the main points of the story. Right? This man of noble birth, he's heading off to a distant country in order to be appointed king. Now, he's not, he's not going off to be appointed king of that country. He's going off to that country to be appointed king of, of both countries, if you like. And then after he has been made king, he is going to return home again. So knowing he's going away, he calls his servants to him, ten of them, gives them each a sum of money with the instruction that they are to put that money to work. And a minor, the commentators reckon, is about three months' wages. That's what he gave to each one, about three months' wages. So it's not a small sum, but it's not a fortune. It's not enough to retire on. In today's money, it's probably a few thousand pounds. Probably more than one, not more than ten. That's what we are talking about. But some people hate him, and they don't want him to be crowned as their king. And they even send a delegation after him to tell him this. But nevertheless, he's crown king. And then he returns home. And later when he returns, he calls the same servants to him and he questions them to find out what they would gained with the money, which is what the instruction that went with it was, put it to use. This money I've given you, what have you gained with it? And the first servant comes and he says, you know, that one miner you gave me, well, that's now earned 10 miners. And he's told, good servant, and he's commended. He's commended for actually handling what to the king is a relatively small sum of money. If you're a king, one miner is not a massive amount of money. But actually, he's given 10 cities to be responsible for. Now, in anyone's book, ten cities is quite a lot, is it not? Given a little amount of money, handles it faithfully, the king says, you are now responsible for ten cities. And then the second servant comes and says the same, except his one minor has become five, and he's given five cities to be responsible for, which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, just imagine if you're a servant. You're a servant, your master gives you a relatively small amount of money to him, a big amount of money to you, and you take one and you make it five, and he says, right, I'm now giving you five cities to look after. And I said, wow. And then the third servant comes in, and uh, he kind of gives back the same minor that he was given, and he says he kept it wrapped in a piece of cloth. This is not a good moment, by the way if you haven't twigged that. It's not a good moment. This is not a good moment. And he says he did it because he was afraid of the king. Probably not the best thing to do. He says the king's a hard man who reaps where he hasn't sown. In essence, he's calling the king a thief. You've taken what you haven't earned. You've taken out what you didn't put in. He's basically calling the king a thief. And so the king says that he's going to treat the man according to what the man has said about the king. Are you with me? He says, if I'm so hard and you feared me so much, then why didn't you at least put the money on deposit? In other words, why didn't you go and give it to a banker? At least you would have earned some interest. I mean, today, if you got money, you put it in the bank, you'll earn some interest. Not a lot, but you will earn some interest. But historically, if you had money, you gave it to a banker, you put it on deposit, you earned good interest, did you not? Yeah, you know, put a thousand pounds in, end of the year, you've got another hundred quid maybe. He says, if I'm such a hard man, why didn't you do that? And the king then orders that the one minor that the man has, the wicked servant has, is given to the good servant. And when the people say that's not fair, the king says, well, those who don't serve me, even the little they have will be taken away and those who do serve me will be given more. And then the story ends with the king going back to the original people in the story who were his enemies and didn't want him to be king in the first place and sent the delegation after him and he brings them in and he executes judgment on them and has them killed. So let's just get our heads around some of the characters, if you like, in this parable. The man of noble birth who comes to the distant country and is appointed king is Jesus. That's who he represents. He's of noble birth, because he's the Son of God. He comes, in a sense, from Earth, uh, from heaven to Earth, which is a very distant and different country. In fact, on the cross, he's going somewhere where really no one else has ever been as well. And he's appointed king, Jesus, but he's not appointed king when his armies defeat all the other armies, but actually when he's crucified on the cross. Raised back to life by his father. That's when Jesus is anointed king. God's amazing plan of salvation. And Jesus knows that his own death on the cross, resurrection, ascension, is literally just round the corner. It's going to happen when he reaches Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that it's gonna be, there's going to be a time and a long time before he comes back. But whilst he's away, this period after the cross, but before he comes back, which you and I live in today in 2020, right? He's giving his servants, he's going to give his servants some things. In the parable, it's represented by money. And he's going to tell them what he wants to do with them, that actually he wants an increase, he wants an extension of his kingdom. He wants them to use what he's given them so that his kingdom may advance, he may have more. And just remember that as Jesus is telling this parable, he is literally surrounded by people who want to kill him, many of whom want to see Jesus crucified, many of whom may be the same people who in just a few short days' time end up lying about him, stirring the Romans against him, stirring the crowd against him, and effectively standing there wanting him to be crucified. And so the very end of this parable, it does relate to the day of judgment in general, but it also, I think, has to include some of those people that are listening to Jesus tell this parable. Do you understand that? There are people there that want to kill Jesus, kill him, want him killed, want him killed, want him killed. Some of those are going to go to Jerusalem, lie, kill him, kill him, him, crucify him, crucify him, some of them heard Jesus say these words on this parable. I wonder how many of them, at some point in the future, God touched their heart, they look back and realize he was talking about me. And maybe they repented and got saved. Interestingly, we aren't told what happened to the wicked servant. We know he, we're told he loses his minor, but that's all we're told. The enemies we're told are killed, but nothing is actually said of the eternal fate of this wicked servant in the parable. Lots of commentators have said, I think this and I think that. I'm just saying to you, in the parable, it doesn't tell us. And so I'm just not going to go there this morning. Because remember, it's a parable, it won't tell us everything. And this morning I want us to focus not on the enemies, not on what happened uh, afterwards, but I want us to focus on the wicked servant, the good servant, and what we can learn and apply from them. So let's take our gaze to this wicked servant. And the issue with the wicked servant is as follows. Because I think when you first read this, you might just think, well, I don't know, he's a bit fearful, whatever, whatever. Seems a bit hard done by. Seems a shame. He didn't do much wrong. I mean, he just put it in his pocket, surely. But when you read it, I think actually there's a lot more going on than that. I would say the wicked servant, three things. He doesn't know the king. He doesn't know the king's purposes. He doesn't want to serve the king and his purposes. And he says that he acted out of fear. Or inacted out of fear. The truth is that he does nothing and loses everything. Let me just give that to you again. He doesn't know the king. He doesn't know the king's purposes. He doesn't want to serve the king and his purposes. And he says that he acted out of fear. The truth is that he did nothing and he lost everything. seems to me at the root of this wicked servant's problem is the fact he doesn't really know the king. He has a perception of what he says the king is like, which is that basically he says he's hard, which means his picture of him is that he's unfair, he's stern, overbearing, and that he's basically a bully and a thief. Because he says you put in what you didn't, You know, you take out what you didn't put in and you reap where you didn't sow. And when the king replies to these accusations, the king never says that he agrees with the wicked servant's character assessment. He doesn't say, yes, you're right, I'm like that. He says, okay, you say I'm like that. I am now going to treat you as if I was like that. That's, in effect, what the king says to him. Basically, he says, if that were true, if you really thought that I was hard and harsh... And a bully and a thief, then wouldn't you have at least put my money in the bank and earned a bit of interest for me? Do you see that? No, okay. Do you get it? See, just follow it through. You're saying I'm hard and harsh and you were afraid and so you did nothing with the money. But if you thought that I was hard and harsh and afraid, wouldn't you at least have just put the money in the bank and earned a little interest? So that when you stand before me now, you're not standing there with nothing. You'd at least have the interest to give me. (laughs) He turns it around, if you like, on the wicked servant. Think about it. The other two servants, as we'll see, doesn't have any issue with the character of the king. What the king is like doesn't paralyze them with fear. So I have to conclude that this wicked servant doesn't really know the king. He has a wrong perception of what the king is like. And secondly, he doesn't really understand the king's purposes. He doesn't seem to know what to do with the money that he's been given. The command is clear use this and put it to work and make me more. The king's looking for what he owns to work for him. And the fact that he just gives it to his servant doesn't change that. He wants it used, he wants growth, he wants expansion. But the wicked servant doesn't get that and literally just puts it in a piece of cloth, puts it away. So there's something where he doesn't understand the purposes of the king. But I think there's also something about this servant more than just the fact he doesn't know the king, he doesn't know his purposes. This is not just a case of ignorance. He doesn't seem to want to know. Maybe he's too lazy, can't be bothered to find out. He, I would say, doesn't seem to really want to serve the king or his purposes. This is not a case of just genuine ignorance. Think about it. He could have asked the other servants. He could have copied what they did. He could have asked them, what do you think the king would want me to do with this money? What are you doing, what are you doing with his money? I don't know, but what are you doing? Oh, you're going to invest it. Ooh. What are you going to do with this? Oh, you're going to invest it. Ooh. He could have actually worked it out. He could have copied them. Even though he's wrong in his assessment, he's clever enough to have an assessment of the king and therefore he's clever enough to put the money in the bank and earn some interest. That's really what the king says to him. You're clever enough to have an assessment of what kind of man you think I am. Your assessment is wrong, you get to the wrong point, but actually if you're clever enough to work out what kind of man you think I am, if that were the case, you would have put that money in the bank and earned me some interest on it. So you don't stand here before me now, empty-handed. So when the man says he acted out of fear, I think by the way that the king treats him, what the king is actually showing him is that there is something more going on here than just ignorance. The man said he was afraid, but I think the king is saying to him there's more than just being afraid here. You're either too lazy or you just don't care enough to find out what I wanted done and then do it. Do you understand that? If you don't get that point, you miss the whole point of this parable. Because you can think, poor man. He was afraid and put the money away. What did he do wrong? I think it's trying to be teased out here. Which is why I think the summary of the wicked servant is actually his someone. He didn't know his king. He didn't know his master, but he could have. He didn't know his king's purposes, but he could have. And he didn't really want to serve the king, either out of laziness or selfishness, but he could have. And the king calls him out on it. The king gets underneath what the man says. The man saying, I was afraid of you, is not going to cut it. Because he's just proved if you were really afraid of me, you wouldn't have acted as you did. You're not really afraid of me. You don't really want to serve me. You don't really know me. You don't really want to serve my purposes, and so you put what I gave you in your pocket and did nothing with it. It's quite clever, isn't it? It's really quite clever. when you follow the logic through, it works. (laughs) He made the excuse of fear, but fear wasn't the real issue. He did nothing. He lost everything. It's a sad tale with the wicked servant, is it not? But it is the wicked servant's fault. <laughs> it is the wicked servant's fault. Because let's look at the good servants. See, in direct contrast, the good servants, they're polar opposite, both of them. They know their king. They know the fact that they need to make some investments with the money that he's given. They're not paralyzed by fear. They're not, he's, he's not hard, as it were, that this other guy accuses him of. No, no, they're not paralyzed by fear. They understand that this money is not theirs. It's only theirs to look after and to do with as the king would have them do. And they put it to work. They invest it wisely. They are looking to make a return on the money so that when the king returns, they can say, we've done as you wanted. They're stewards. They get their stewards of something that belongs to the king. They understand, no, no, we've been blessed. We've been given an opportunity. This is not something to trip us up. This is an opportunity. We're just servants, but we've been entrusted with this money from the king, and we're to use it as he says. This is an opportunity for us to show our faithfulness, our devotion, to treat this, to treat this that we've been given right. They understand it's his money, but they're going to have to make some decisions. They're the ones who are going to choose how it's invested. They're going to have to search out good investments, the right investments. They're going to have to watch them. They're going to have to use the money as the king wanted them to use it. They're going to have to give an account to the king for how they used it. So it seems to me these two good servants, because they know the king and because they understand his purpose and because they want to serve him They want to be diligent and faithful. They want to to please him. They want to do what he said. They get on with the task. They're not paralyzed by fear. They invest, which probably means taking some risks. Because generally when you invest money more than putting in the bank, there's a risk there. It's like they exercise faith. It's okay. The king's given us this money to make a return on. We're going to invest it here and here and here. Pick some good ones. And just note here, The one that makes ten, the one that makes five, there's no competition between them. The one who makes more is given greater responsibility, but the one who makes five is still given great responsibility, bigger than they could have ever dreamed of, rewarded way beyond whatever they've produced. They they had one, they made five. They had one, they made ten. They're given cities. It's so off the chart, their reward in relation to what they've made. So don't be distracted by the differing amounts. The key is this, that the faithful, risk-taking, king-serving actions of the servants, which was small change to them, led them being put in charge of cities, of being given great reward, great amounts of wealth in his kingdom. It's an amazing little parable for these two good servants, eh? What an amazing thing. question is, how does this apply to us? Because Jesus told parables not just for interesting stories, because he wanted to say something to people like you and me. So in this parable, there are two types of servant to the king. There's the wicked servant, there's the good servant. And we've said the king represents Jesus. And therefore the question becomes, what type of servants are we, are you and I, to Jesus? Are we like the wicked servant or are we like the good servant? Well, let's ask ourselves the same questions. Do we know Jesus? Do we know what he is like? Do we know his character? Do we know his ways? Do we know how he thinks and acts? Do we know his purposes? Do we know what his kingdom is all about? Do we know what he's trying to do on the earth right now? Do we know what he wants to do through you and me individually and corporately? If we don't know Jesus, how can we represent him? Any more than this wicked servant couldn't represent him because he didn't know him. If we don't know the big picture of what Jesus is wanting his kingdom to achieve on earth, We won't understand how what we do in our daily lives fits that bigger picture. If we don't know him and his purposes, won't we be in danger either out of fear or laziness or self-centeredness of effectively putting whatever Jesus has given us and kind of wrapping it in a piece of cloth and just kind of sticking it in our pocket or sticking it in the bottom drawer? That when we stand before him, as we are going to do one day, just like in the parable, the servants come back and stand before him, we are going to stand before Jesus one day. And when he asks us these kind of questions, what did you do with the things that I gave you, Dale? What did you do with your life? What did you do for my kingdom? What did you do as, if you like, a return on my investment in you as i blessed you who did you go on to bless when we stand before jesus and he asks us those kind of questions which he is absolutely uniquely entitled to ask us because he is our savior and lord if you're a christian here he is our master and king if we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the servants in the parable i don't know about you but I do not want to be digging around my pocket for a hanky which contains nothing more than what he gave me in the first place. And in this parable, the thing the servants are given is money with a commandment to put this money to work. And then they're judged on how faithfully, and by faithfully I mean faithful as in good stewards, but also faith-filled, full of faith, they used it in the service and advancement of the king's kingdom. That's what's going on in the parable. But money or material wealth is just used as a means in this story because it makes it really easy for people like you and I to understand. But the principles apply to much more than just money or material wealth. The principle applies to anything the king would have given them, any blessing he would have given them, anything that they had stewardship over until he came back. And therefore, the same principle applies to anything, as it were, that Jesus has given us, material or spiritual. And I tend to think of them under four headings, material wealth, talent, time, and relationships, or people. I think this parable and the heart behind it we should apply into those four areas of our lives. How we use the money, the material wealth that God has given us, that God has enabled us to earn. It's all his money. In the, in the story, the master uh, gives them the money. It's not their money. He's going to ask for a return on it. They're not to keep it. Even the responsibility for the cities is still his cities. Any money that you and I have... Jesus has enabled us to earn it. He has given it. It's his. We couldn't earn a penny of it without his breath, his strength, and his wisdom. So do we hoard it? Do we keep hold of it? Do we recklessly spend it on ourselves and our pleasures? Or do we invest it in the kingdom of God, knowing there's going to be a payday, knowing there's going to be a return on investment? Do we invest in the bank of today or in the bank of heaven? It's a question. Where do we put our money. How do we use our talents that God's given us? Do we use them to extend our kingdom, his kingdom, the things that he's enabled us to do at work, at home, at church? Not always easy, often time-consuming, usually for the benefit of others. But somehow we know that God has given us things that we can do that somehow he will use in his bigger overall plan of salvation. Do we use the talents that he has given us? How do we use the time that God has given us? Someone said our greatest gift is the gift of time. How much of a priority is time spent getting to know him? How much of the time that he's given us do we spend getting to understand his purposes? Getting to understand how our lives fit into his overall plan? Do we wish for more time day by day, week by week? I hear Christians say, if only I had more time, if only there was another eight hours in the day. But you know, that's a mistaken belief that we would somehow use that extra time to focus on Him, when in reality, if we had more time, we'd probably just fill it with more of the same stuff than we do now. I honestly don't think time is the real issue, or God would have made more hours in the day. It's really about. Will I spend my time walking with God or not? And if we can't learn to do that in 24, if he gave us 48, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. Hmm. How do we treat, regard the relationships, the people that God has brought into our lives? Do we love them, serve them, encourage them, point them to Jesus? Do we bless them in the same way that he's blessed us? Do we bless them with whatever he has Blessed us with. See, I think that every time we use one of those, our money, our talent, our time, our relationships with people, every time we use one of those four for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God, for the glory of Jesus Christ, then I think heaven says, good servant. Good servant. Every time we spend time getting to know him, I think heaven shouts, good servant. Every time we encourage one of our brothers and sisters with a prayer or a word or a card or a listening ear, I think heaven says, good servant. Every time we demonstrate or show the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus, Like Dan was saying when he offered to pray for those people. Every time we do that, I think heaven says, good servant. I think every time you and I resist temptation, because sometimes in the parable, like money, it's easy to count. Well, he had one, he had ten. I can see fruit. I must be good. Let me tell you, I think every time we resist temptation and don't do what the king doesn't want us not to do. Are you with me? Hard to count that, isn't it? But every time we obey the king, and that means doing what he wants, but also not doing what he doesn't want, every time we do that, I think heaven says, good servant. I'm going to say it louder and louder. I like it. Every time we pray individually or corporately for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, I think heaven shouts, good servant. Every time we give generously, every time we give generously ourselves, every time we as a church give generously outside of ourselves, I think heaven says, good servant. Every child that we try and reach, every teenager we try and disciple, like the whole crowd that are away at Carroty Wood this weekend, every time we as a church give ourselves to that, I think heaven says, good servant. Every time you listen and act with patience and kindness because you want to try and show people. Jesus, and as best you can, you are trying to be his ambassadors in this mixed-up, crazy, confused world. I think heaven says, good servant. So let's never grow weary of doing good because we have a great reward. It may be stored up for us in heaven. It's like what it says about this parable. You know, Jesus told this parable, I am coming back. I am coming back. And when I come back, not only will I ask for an account, But actually, for those whose lives have had this resound of good servant from heaven over them, guess what? I'm going to reward them. I'm going to reward them. So let's not live our lives in fear. Let's not keep quiet and do nothing. Let's not be like that wicked servant who takes what God's given us, sticks it in a manky hanky and sticks it in our pocket. I mean, why would we want to do that? Let's live by faith. Let's take some risks. Let's understand that God's given us some stuff. He's given us some time. He's given us some talents. He's given us our lives. And we are to, if you like, invest them in the kingdom. And if we do that, I believe he will sort out the good and well-done faithful servant. And he will sort out the reward. I'm done, thanks, Tim. <coughs> hmm. Hmm.